You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered with me, James O'Brien. Um, actually, it isn't. It's producer Rich here. James has been off beavering away at his new book. Uh, he's finished it, so normal service will resume shortly. But for this week, we're doing something a little bit different. We've had a lot of new listeners join the show recently, uh, and we're very glad to have you. So we thought we'd take this opportunity to shine a light on some of our previous episodes, particularly ones featuring people who perhaps aren't household names, but nevertheless have fascinating stories to tell. Now, if you sat at home thinking, hang on a minute, this is just a best of... Yeah, it is. Yeah, you've rumbled us. But the stories you're about to hear cover some important ground from trans rights to poverty, race, diversity and FGM. Uh, That sounds a bit heavy, but don't worry, we'll try and squeeze a few laughs in there as well. So let's kick off with a bit of Scroobius Pip. Pip is a rapper, a poet and a host of the brilliant Distraction Pieces podcast. He's a raconteur, a renaissance man and a bloody nice bloke on top of it all. Here he is talking to James in episode 20 of Unfiltered back in February 2018. What sort of kid were you? Um, I was, I was quite a shy kid. Um, at the age of four, I almost drowned and that caused me to have a stutter. So I was a shy kid almost by default and sometimes a funny kid as defence as well. Cause it's that kind of, it's that weird thing of if, like, if you start a new school, the first thing that, oh, everyone's nervous and yeah. scared and wants to find someone to be a victim that isn't also, them. Everyone thinks... That no one realises that everyone else is nervous yeah, and scared as well. completely. Though, so. But the, the thing is, at the start of school, the first thing they do is call the register. And if the first first thing that happens is you can't say yeah. here or whatever else, if you stutter on a word, you're then, oh, there's the target. Right. Do you know what I mean? So Anything. it's kind of, that's the victim. Yeah, so it's, ginger hair, glasses, yeah, but a stutter exactly. is particularly live, Anything, isn't it? Any of those things. Yeah. But gin, again, I, I would easily argue that ginger hair or glasses are equally as much of a... Or can be as much of a target as a stutter. So you can like, take your glasses off, you can dye your hair. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, So, yeah, but that was weird. But it, it's. I believe that my stutter is responsible for my whole career, from spoken word and rap to, to talking on podcasts, because I wasn't a particularly bright kid. Uh, my English teacher <laughs> warned a mate of mine to not... or. To, Took a mate of mine aside and said, "Look, you can do better than hanging out with with David of my given name." Um, so I wasn't this great student, but I developed quite a wide vocabulary, almost as a survival tactic, because mm. I'd be thinking ahead of words I'm going to stutter on and replacing them oh, okay. with other words. That's how it works mentally. Yeah, yeah. like chess. particularly at that point. Yeah. yeah, and it's something that. I think from an early age, although I wasn't a big reader, I try and read a lot more now, but I wasn't a big big reader as a kid. As soon as I started on the music, everyone assumed I was wonderfully educated because I had quite a wide vocabulary and wove it into my lyrics. And it was like, no, no, that was... It's like cultural references as well, though. It's not not just like you swallowed a thesaurus or something like that. No, yeah, again, it's kind of that, it's trying to have that awareness of things I, I i lucked out on having a big brother that's far more intelligent than me so he got his his, his philosophy degree and things like that. so the bulk of the books again as i wasn't a big reader as a kid the bulk of the books i've read in my life have been stuff my brother has said here's what you need to read special and again it's not fair because he's read t- t- 10 books to get to that point sure and he gets so ignore them nine 
here's the one you need. This and it's like, oh, God damn it, I'm getting a shortcut here. So it's a hack, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I, I do feel I've hacked, hacked my way into the appearance of intelligence. Oh, but right. it's, again, it's that openness to, to ideas. Are, are we sure that the stutter was linked to the drowning incident? Um, Is that... From what I've heard, yeah, mm. generally stutters come from traumatic events. Again, I find all of it fascinating because we don't yes. understand the brain at all. I, on, on, as, on one of the, the guests on my podcast, I had the comedian... Dylan Moran. Yes. And as I, I said his name there, I tapped it out on my on my thigh because if I try and say his name without tapping it, I say Dylan Moran, and it's always something I stutter on. Right. And and you know that a bassist in a band just taught me a tapping thing. And again, I'm convinced that it's why, like you, the famous example is always Gareth Gates or of my generation. He started, and when he sung, he didn't stutter. And again, it. People will comment that when I rap, I don't stutter. But I think it's having a slight distraction. And that just, the rhythmicness of going Dylan Moran, Dylan Moran, and tapping it out on my leg, adjust that. And I find that shit fascinating. Yeah, um, it's, it's bizarre that, yeah, we don't understand the human brain at all. But yeah, I, I had some hypnosis and I didn't know about the drowning thing as a kid being a big deal. Yeah. My parents at the time had played it down hugely. Yeah, of course. My main memory was my dad who came out and saved me, just saying, oh, you've ruined my trainers. And we making the light seaside, of it. Right? Yeah, yeah, we're right. at the seaside in France. Um, and, yeah, it, I had this hypnosis, and we kind of looked back, and that that j- jumped out somewhere in my subconscious as an event, which is fascinating, because, again, I'd kind of... I'd been sceptical of hypnosis, because I'd been led to believe it was controlling people, and they, and they don't know what's going on. Pretty much all the time in hypnosis, I felt aware. Right. Okay. As much a relaxation thing and drawing you back and trying to pick bits out of your your mind. So yeah, in that that that's kind of, of what we found. And we found that I had like a recurring dream where I couldn't. A witch was coming up my stairs and I couldn't right. scream out to my parents. And she believed that that was from from when I was trying to scream out to my parents in the sea yes. and waves were going in my mouth and that was kind of the trigger for this weird and it goes so glitch. deep it goes so deep yeah you're not going to be able to dig it back out yeah without it, help exactly but again it's it's something that i'm fine with now i kind of just think of Good. it as an accent as much as anything well, it's, when you said you think it's a big part of, of everything you've done subsequently yeah. is, is that because if, if you were going to refuse to be cowed by something then some of the choices you've made would be the most resounding evidence that you're not cowed i mean it, I wish it was as bold as that. I, I, I honestly don't think it's, it's quite as bold as that. During the hypnosis, a lot of the thing that she taught me was breathing techniques to make me a calmer person because it was just felt that... And again, with anything like that, the more you think about it, the worse it's going to be. <laughs> and as we've kind of highlighted, the reality of humans is n- no one cares about it as much as you do. No. Everyone's the lead actor in their own film. So you're sitting there thinking, I started on that, everyone's thinking about it. In we're in the nicest way I can put it, no one's thinking about you after you've left the room. Scroobius Pitt there, back in episode 20 of Unfiltered. Paris Lees came on the show in January 2018. A writer, journalist and trans rights activist, Paris's journey led her to the pages of British Vogue, becoming the first openly trans woman to be featured in the magazine. But things weren't always so good, as she explains in episode 14 of Unfiltered. I think it's fair to say that my parents didn't 
know how to support a child like me. At what point did you become a child like you? When did it emerge? When would your parents have registered the fact that you were perhaps a little bit different from all their friends' children? Well, I mean, from the from the earliest memory, really. I mean, one of my, I hate it because it's so cliche, but one of my earliest memories was sitting on a park bench with a girl who's a bit older than me. And um, I was saying, I'm a girl. And I just remember going... Her, her saying, uh, ah, have you heard what he said? Uh, and there was the, these lads on uh, the swings going, what, what, what? And she said, he said he's a girl. And that was the first time, really, that I was like, oh, OK. So the way I see myself is not necessarily how uh, other people see how, me. How old would you have been then, Paris? Um I'd have been uh, four. And would yeah. you already have said at home that you were a girl and, and they'd have just gone, oh, she'll get over it? Well, I did, he'll yeah. Get, he'll get over it, of course. Yeah, well, I did, I did. But presumably you'd you'd had these conversations at home already. You'd said to your parents that you were a girl and they'd just told you that you'd soon grow out of it or no, get I, over I, yourself? No, I think that was the first time I think I remember, because I, I distinctly remember kind of like running up the street and thinking, oh, God, am I in trouble when I get home kind of thing. But, yeah, pretty much from like the early stage, it was just like, I'm a girl, I want to be a girl and it... I just knew, and you speak to so many trans people and they just tell you the same thing. It just I mean, I can't really explain it. I just felt like I was a girl, whatever that means. Um, and I, that that it, that just felt right for me. And I never, ever, ever, ever felt like I should have been a boy. Um, this, is, this is the point. This is the disconnect between people like you and people like me, isn't it? Because I can listen to you and believe you and trust you, but I might as well try to imagine what it's like growing up black yeah well the the thing is as well because you see what i see people doing is that, and, and we all do this as human beings don't we we try and frame something in a way that we can understand yes. you know so so people will go you know women for instance may go well i was a tomboy you know and i i like playing with trucks yeah yeah so so it's like that isn't it and it's like no it's 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 not that and it's it's like trying to <laughs> It's like trying to explain grief to someone who hasn't experienced grief or falling in love or going through puberty. You know, these concepts that we're introduced to before we've experienced them and we think we've got them. Mm. And unless you can actually feel it, and just on a really, you know, like a a really silly example, my cat died last year Mm. and uh, I've never lost a pet before because she was my first pet. And I just used to sort of laugh, you know, like, you know, people were upset. I was like, it's just a dog, you know? And then my cat died, and I was like, "Oh, right, okay." So I, I see now that I've been really unsympathetic. It really is a hole in my I've life. I've never experienced it. Uh, yeah, and I do actually think that this is a really integral. Um, well, it, it's a real, like a tripping point because I don't know how I, you know, I've tried my best to kind of help people to understand and empathise, but I don't know how I can make you understand it. All I can ask is you know, for you to take my word for it. Yes. Well, this is the point. I mean, either I'm not someone you need to persuade. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll talk more about the people who do need persuading. But it's like sexuality. It is... I mean, I, I, when I was not enjoying a great deal of romantic success in my late teens... and, and I was Surely not. Living, yes. I know, it's hard to believe. I was living with a couple of gay lads in Manchester and I'd go clubbing with them 
And it was clear that if I could just be gay, I'd be getting laid every night. But it just, right. I just couldn't do it. It was just never going to happen. And you could, you, you could yeah. spend your whole life trying, to, but it was just never going to be. Yeah. And that's how you were as a, yeah. as a boy. You could have tried to be a boy and you had the boy's bits, but you yeah. just could never be a boy. And I that, had the perfect disguise for it, frankly. <laughs> it's a perfect camouflage. Every, everything was there, you um, know. And so you got home uh, and, and, and then it all kind of began, presumably. You, when did you start... Uh, identifying when did you start I should also say that I, I'm not comfortable in the vocabulary of these conversations I'm not fully comfortable I'm more enlightened than a lot of people in the British media but I'm by far the finished far from the finished article very much a work in progress so anything I say incorrectly you must pull me up on it and, and tell me what I'm getting wrong but but when did you seek to start living as a as a girl not for a long time you, you, your childhood must have been Difficult. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I mean, I used to go to school in my sister's tights and, uh, you know, use the girls' toilets or try to, uh, you know, ask people to refer to me as a girl. And I must have been, oh, gosh, maybe seven, eight or something at, at that point. Um, my uh, family on the theme, my mum's side, my, my grandma, my auntie would let me have dolls and Polly Pockets, things like that. But they were still thinking you were going to grow out of it. Yeah, yeah, it was just, yeah, so this is the thing. It was never, you know, you were, it was just, you know, you're a boy and that's fine. You can play with girls' stuff. We don't have a problem with that. Um, but when I started going to school, you know, wearing leggings and things like that and stuff, um, they, they took me to the doctor and the doctor suggested that I uh, go to see a child psychiatrist. My parents never actually followed up on that because... I think that they were worried that maybe they may say, you know, no. uh, there's something wrong with him, or, or I, I don't know. I think it was just it was just too much for them, and um, and and so I suppressed that, and I I got the message that it was you cannot do this. You are a boy. You have a willy. That's it. Mm. And, and you know, that, that it's literally just not an option. And um, you know, you, you'd have been. <laughs> More likely to have seen an alien walking down my high street yes. than 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 a trans person. It was ju- it was just not an option. Paris Lees from episode fourteen of Unfiltered. You probably know June Sarpong from her days as a T four presenter, but she came on Unfiltered to talk about more than interviewing pop stars, namely diversity and the British class system. She was also the inaugural member of the elite Unfiltered Guests with Brilliant Laughs Club. Here she is on episode six back in November twenty seventeen. Don't say this the wrong way. Mm. I would have marked you down as as one of the people who had a master plan at 15, 16. But largely because you achieved success so young, which I think those of us who didn't find it a little bit hard to believe that it happened by accident. You must have had a master plan because you were on telly when you were barely out of your (laughs) teens. No, it's called being... Which is why, honestly, James, this is why social mobility Mm. means so much to me because it really was just being in the right place at the right time and being given an opportunity. Serendipity. Um, Yeah. And had, had I not gotten that work experience placement, I have no idea what my life would be like now because it completely changed the trajectory of my life. Sliding doors. Yeah, mind. really. What, how did you get it? What was the... It's the funniest thing. So, um, so like I said, the, the middle-class do-gooders, yeah. you and your friends who, <laughs> <laughs> who sent their kids to my school. Um, so our PTA uh, was really strong and uh, had very good corporate links. 
So our work experience placement for my school was phenomenal. It mm. would match that of any um, private school, no question. Um, and so one of the mums had a link to Kiss FM. So work experience at Kiss FM was was on offer. And I um, put my name down for it, as did my friend. And then we both put our name down for London Contemporary Dance. And uh, we had to pick our names out of a hat because we both had the same choice. And she got London Contemporary Dance and I got Kiss FM. What's she doing now? I have no- Oh, I heard she was at Butlins. Really? She was a Redcoat. Is what, now? Redcoat? Yeah, Good yeah, grief. she's a Redcoat. Well, yeah. Contemporary Dance of sorts. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Novelty knees, that kind of thing. That's under, that's underrated. She's very Butlins. flexible. I'm sure she's a great Redcoat. <laughs> so, so that's 16. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly you think... Ah, and oh, okay. I'm like, wow. And imagine this was when Kiss had just become legal. So mm. I think it was like a year into um, them having their license. And so everybody was there. This was like the heyday when all of the DJs from Tongi, uh, Trevor Nelson, Judge Jules, all of them that were there. And imagine me as a 16-year-old kid around all of that. It was amazing. I can't imagine it. Yeah. What, what did you do? I mean, are you oh, well, I was socially confident? Yeah, but you, you um, can talk I, to people. Yes, yes. So one thing I've always had, and again, I, I get that from my dad, was I've, I've always been good with people. I like people. Yes. I'm one of those people I actually do like people. So talking to people was never an issue for me. And I think because I didn't know who any of them were, it meant that I wasn't intimidated or nervous. I mean, had I known who they were, probably not. Um, and they kind of took me under their wing because I was the youngest member of the team. They all looked after me. And in fact, my MTV job came from Trevor Nelson. He put my name forward. So, yeah, yeah. That's just sort of a lining of the planets. Mm. So, the, so the work experience led into... Yes, so work, so work experience and I went to do my A-levels. Um, and then when I finished my A-levels, I was going to go to university... And Kiss offered me a permanent job. And my mother, uh, much to her annoyance and then the annoyance of my African family, because obviously with Ghanaians, education is everything. Um, They called a family meeting. You are bringing shame on this family. What do you mean? (laughs) Uh, What's this nonsense? Talking on radio. (laughs) A band man. And so back then, you know, it's so funny when I see people like Stormzy and all of those guys now, who now their parents are proud that they're, you know, rappers or whatever. Sure. In my day, that was like the worst thing you could be, a bandsman. So um, so anyway, so my dad was the only one who stood by me and he said, I'm going to give you a year. And if this nonsense doesn't work out, you're going to university. So I thought, well, I better make it work. And yeah, luckily, um, within a year, I was on air. Uh, and then once I was on air, my mum was like, oh, yes, I told her, follow her dreams. <laughs> it was my idea. <laughs> Proud as you like, though. Yeah. As soon as. Exactly. Well, why is that? Is that because she could sort of boast about it? Exactly, because then she could show off to her friends. Oh, make sure you tune in on Saturday at 10 a.m. <laughs> and was that, so when you did the work experience, it was getting on air that was the was the seed that was sown? Yeah. You thought, I yeah. wanted, why? Definitely. Why? So it was two things. So I had a very, bad car accident um before my work experience this was which was kiss was so lovely so i had this terrible car accident didn't walk for over a year it was awful and uh kiss kept the work experience placement open for me until i got better and so once i recovered i still had this big old neck brace um they then allowed me to come and do the placement 
And so in the time I was in hospital, I used to watch TV all the time. And I saw Oprah Winfrey and I said, oh, my God, wow, you can be paid to talk. I want to do that one day. Um, and so then once I got to Kiss FM, that seed had been planted in my head from Oprah, but I never thought I could actually do it. Mm. You know, it was just like I'd like to do it. Never thought. Then once I got to Kiss and saw there were people doing it, then I was like, actually, this is possible. June Sarpong from episode six of Unfiltered. Of all the people who've appeared on Unfiltered so far, Michelle Lyons is probably the least famous of them all. But her extraordinary career working with and for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice saw her witness nearly 300 executions, an experience that few of us could ever imagine. She spoke to James in May 2018 on episode 31 of Unfiltered. You write very powerfully about Napoleon Beasley, who I think was the first person to fit into the category that you've just described as someone you didn't think deserved. That's the right word to use. Deserved. Yeah. You didn't think he deserved to die. Tell us a bit about him. Napoleon was 17 at the time that the crime was committed. And from all accounts, he was this great student and I think was a student council in his class and was a football star and everything. And he fell in with a bad crowd. And they were out and about and they saw this man and his wife and they're driving this Mercedes and they decide that they want this Mercedes which is really inexplicable. It was not a nice car. It was an old version and everything. But they followed this couple home. And when the couple got out of their car, they ran in and attacked. And uh, the man was shot and killed, uh, John Ludig. And mm. his wife played dead on the floor of the garage. And they stole the car. And so Napoleon was, was caught and arrested and charged not too long after. So I got to know him as a reporter and interviewed him several times. And he had a lot of media interest because he had been 17 at the time the crime was committed. And at that time, there was a big push to stop the execution of anyone who was considered a juvenile at the time of the crime. And interviewed him a number of times. The execution got a stay. So that was fine. And then I went to work for the prison system. And he In between. Got another so this date. story straddled your two yes. jobs, didn't it? You were a journalist when he was yes. convicted, but you were the public information officer at the facility when the story progressed. Yeah, I was a journalist when he had his first execution date. Right. So I got to know him then because I'm interviewing him for that. Um, he gets a stay of execution. And then I get the job at the prison system. What do you emotionally have invested in that when you hear that this boy that you quite liked, you'd warmed to? Are you celebrating a bit when you hear he's got a stay? Can you let yourself get that involved? The first time, not as much, because I, I knew him from mm. interviewing him, right. but not that well. Sure, there's a distance so, involved yes, in this. And yeah, that. I'm yeah. a journalist. Yeah, and absolutely. so I just met him, you know, once or twice. He's troubled and, by his age, though, surely. You yes. Know, yeah, just, and when I met him, he was very likable, and he was very um, remorseful for what he had done. Mm. He absolutely accepted responsibility. You know, I, I used to talk to some who would make excuses for why it happened. I mean, he, he didn't do any of that. He was very no nonsense about, yeah, I did this and I hate that I did it. I'm sorry that I did it and, and such. Mm. When I was working for the prison system, he got another execution date. And now all these journalists are wanting to talk to him. So I am setting up these interviews and I'm going every Wednesday to our death row media day. And in between when these other reporters are talking to him and they're being brought in and out, I'm talking to him. And that's really when I got to know him and thought, I don't, I don't really get the sense that if this person were given another chance that he would do something like this again. And I started to struggle with it, but I also felt really guilty for feeling that way. Because I thought, you know, still there's somebody who, this is yeah. his parents. 
and his father was shot and killed in his own home while his mother was laying on the floor playing dead. That's horrible. And so I felt really guilty for rooting for Napoleon because then I was essentially rooting against the victims and I felt really bad for that. But still when the execution came up and we had to go and talk to Napoleon, me and uh, Larry Fitzgerald, who yeah, was the yeah, other public information someone, officer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when we had to go talk to him prior to the execution, Larry had made this comment to him where he said, you know, you look very calm. And, and Napoleon said, well, look again. And it just really struck me. And, and when it was time to leave, I was really struggling to not cry because I thought if these officers see this, I'm toast. Yeah. They'll never respect me. Um, just, just pause there sorry. briefly. It's a, because empathy would be seen as a weakness, any form of empathy. I certainly felt it would. Yeah. yeah. Because too, I'm a, I'm a woman doing this job. Right, so I already so felt like I had to be, yes, felt like I had to be tougher anyway. So um, after the execution, that was the first time that I did the press conference afterwards because there was so much media there that we couldn't possibly accommodate them all. Right. And so I had to go in and actually conduct the press conference, which was run live on CNN and all these different news programs. And, um, that was difficult because I didn't want to see what I had just seen because of how I felt about the case and stuff and the guilt and just it was all in play. So when I left that night, um, that was probably the first time that I actually cried after an execution. Michelle Lyons speaking on episode 31 of Unfiltered. We'll get back to the show in a moment. But here's Russell Kane to tell you about his new podcast on Joe. Hi, this is Russell Kane. I'm telling you about a brand new podcast, Boys Don't Cry, hosted by me, where I force men to talk about things they probably wouldn't talk about and also get girls to comment on what we just talked about. So subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts, Boys Don't Cry from joe.co.uk. If you were lucky enough to be at the Hacienda during that glorious time in Manchester in the late 80s and early 90s, you were almost certainly being taken on a musical journey by Dave Haslam, one of the resident DJs at the club. If you weren't there, here's Dave to take you back. Taken from episode 35 of Unfiltered. When did you realise that DJing had become a performance art? I think the first time, really, it sounds odd, but I think it was 1990. What? Really? I know, yeah. Four years after you started playing yeah. at the Hacienda. How come? Because, because up until that point, I was the bloke putting on the records that people danced to. Uh, yes. and, and to me, it was a joy, but it wasn't... I didn't realise anything of the cultural significance of it. And then and then a couple of things happened in 19... The Spike Island happened, mm. and, and the Stone... And that was the third or fourth gig I'd done warming up for the Stone Roses, which, I mean, they were all great gigs, but there were 20,000 people yeah, there. Geez. You know, it was a big, big deal. And there were camera crews and press releases and all that stuff, which we had not had really before then. We were underground. Yeah. We were underground people, just as you'd now get a cultural underground. And our underground lasted a long time because <laughs> nobody was particularly interested and no one could access it. And we were in Manchester. And when it did get overground, that was when it suddenly became a big deal. Okay. And then the same year, we did a Hacienda DJ tour of America. And Graham Park, one of the other Hacienda DJs, and I were sat in the back of a limousine going from Detroit Airport into the centre of Detroit to play records. And, and we just, he knows his music, the depth that I do. And we just looked at each other and we're like, Detroit is one of the music capitals of the world, if not the music capital of the world. Why have they flown us all the way here and sent a limousine for us to play our ropey selection of Hacienda tunes? And that was us being a bit self-deprecating, sure. but it was also us suddenly realising, wow, this is what we've been doing has become 
big and important. Well, answer that question then. Why did they invite you to Detroit? What, Be- what was going on that was so special? Well, Manchester was just, that era was beginning to be talked about and everybody wanted a little taste of it. Funnily enough, on that tour, we went to, I remember playing the night before in Chicago and the guy running the club at the end of the night said, I've never run a night where we've had such a mix of black and white kids in our crowd. And for someone like me, that was a much, much better thing for anyone to say to me than... You know, oh, I love that weird 23 Skidoo dub mix that you played. (laughs) You know, that goes without saying that's what DJs should do. They should play stuff like that. Yeah. But for someone to actually in Chicago to say that, you know... You've broken a barrier. Yeah, you've broken that kind of barrier. And I think there were people in America who had, you know, got bored of the pretty straight rock thing and rock and house music wasn't mixing in america and there were a few people who were just like us because that's the other great thing james about being a dj is you travel and wherever you go you meet your tribe Mm -hmm. because they're the the guys or the women who are running the club they take you to their favorite little hangout come and have a drink here oh you've got to meet this person and you know and i remember going to Reykjavik for about a day and a half and i went to kind of like three little record shops, four art gallery openings, a couple of restaurants, you know, and somebody else's club. And then after I finished, I went to somebody else's club. And it was, and there they were. They were people just like me who were living in downtown Reykjavik. They did want to talk about weird music, but they also, and I just, I love that connection. I love making that connection. And and that's why perhaps more recently, after, after your marriage broke down, you moved to Paris. It kind of, yeah, it, it's it kind well, of, anyway. Un, well, un- My love un- life un- is un- a lot in the book, but yes, what I do is, I, is. I, I, partly because I don't really know what the status of my relationship with Tracy Thorne back in 1983-4 was, for yes. example. And like anyone, really, once they start looking under the surface, I kind of begin to think, what's going on in my life? Yes. Um, so, yeah, things got a bit complicated, and I went off to Paris. Change of air. More input. Yeah, I mean, I think in the the book it sort of slightly falls into three parts. The first part is the kind of the, that evolution of all that stuff, me absorbing stuff, but also the the roots of the whole Manchester thing being laid by me and dozens of other people, and then it all coming to fruition. And then there's a middle section which is the Spike Island and you know Gunchester, Tony Wilson, all those things, which is kind of the things that I feel like are more in the public domain. Yes. People feel like they know that. You know, it's like you know the the books that Hooky might write, for example. Yes. So I kind of feel like people know that stuff. So my take on all that is a very honest and personal one. And, and, and then the final shocking at times. People, I, mean, I hadn't heard the story about you having a gun pulled on you in the DJ booth before. Or, no, well, yeah. I mean, it is especially the Gunchester years are quite shocking. Yeah. And that actually, uh, you know, getting a proper death threat off a proper. Mean, I'm not. I'm not talking about the. I mean, there was the gun guy, and then there yeah. was a death threat, and having to deal with by being the kind of guy that you know I was, suddenly put into a situation where, by that time, I was running club nights yes. at the boardwalk, so I had a I'd, I had a very high profile, and I was involved in trying to keep some pretty heavy bad guys out of the club, and my son was very young. And then my daughter was bored, and I was kind of like getting home at two o'clock in the in the morning, and I was 
you know, if I if I'd been religious, I'd have got down on my knees and thanked God because they were it. very very hairy situations. Yeah. Dave Haslam from episode thirty five of Unfiltered. Nimco Ali is a woman on a mission. She's leading the fight against female genital mutilation, working tirelessly to bring about an end to the practice. She was seven when she was taken to Djibouti to be cut, a story she shared with James in episode 15 back in January 2018. What exactly does it involve? Um, So there's like four major types and they get more invasive as they go along. So the three most um, common forms of FGM is a clitoridectomy, so they just remove the hood or partially or part of the clitoris. Um, With a razor? With a razor, with scissors, with with anything that can really cut. And um, as we go on, the, like you know, FGM is becoming more and more medicalized, and it's yeah. happening within medical settings because we've we've spent a long time looking at um, trying to reduce harm as opposed to like you know looking at the humanity oh, really? and the rights of women. So if you must do it, do it in a way that minimizes the harm you'll do to the exactly child. or to the or, or to the person as they become women and they right. have children and everything oh, well, else yes, of course. so um so that's that one and then and, and then type 2 is the removal of the clitoris and um the external labias so i'm not sure how how familiar you are with the female anatomy but um women's like you know like, like you know, we haven't got images right now, but yeah. So it's like basically, it's like taking the lips out. So you have they have these like external um, and again gen- with a razor or with scissors a razor or, or scissors, and then type three. Um, which is the one that's most common and it's the one that I had was the fact that it was removing the clitoris, like partially removing the clitoris, the external labias, and then pulling everything together and stitching it up. So and then and then um, what, what, why Nimco? What what is? I mean, I appreciate you've dedicated most of your adult life to campaigning against it, but for those of us who come to this with abject ignorance, um, but obviously empathy, well, what is the reasoning behind there is no, it? There is no reason in a pub. But there must have been, when it began, somebody no, when, must have... When it began, I think it was began, it was just like, I think it was like some really, like, you know, angry and disgusting men that decided that if they were going to keep the chastity of their women, then this is what they were going to do to it. And what so, I, so that becomes, I didn't know this, because I, I understood the removal of the clitoris as a way of diminishing or de- de- denying sexual pleasure which yeah. would of course render the woman even more of a chattel to her man and if, if she doesn't enjoy sex then she's not going to cheat on him and therefore his patriarchal position becomes yeah. enforced becomes but, pleasure, but, the, but the stitching you've described that is a form of ensuring that this purity this child yeah. cannot grow into a woman who will have sex with anybody yeah. until a man decides and then they remove the stitching, do they, so at marriage? They, or? So, yeah, so what the whole Camtox is Christ. that they're, they're, meant to re- um, they're meant to remove those um, stitches or de-infibulate you. So that's, like, you know, the legal definition of, like, you know, type 3 is infibulation. Yes. And then they de-infibulate. So I don't want to, um, because one of the things that I do all the time is that a lot of people want to talk about FGM in a very yes. soft way. And I'm well, like, we're not doing soft. that today. Yeah. We're it's not going to do that today. It's Tempting a, though it is, because obviously this is, I'm disturbed. And you're right, and you and you have the right to be disturbed. And I think I want people to be disturbed, and I want people to be angry enough to say that I really want this to stop. Because um, one of the really interesting things is that people always say to me, "Oh, we don't want to be judgmental." You're jumping like, ahead again. Oh no, no, no! no. Okay. I'm just I'm talking in general right. about the issue of FGM. People say in the context of like we don't want to be judgmental, and I'm like, actually, you should be judgmental. There, there is no balance. To there this is no debate. balance. There, you don't invite on someone now. Have now. Thank you very much, Nim Kavali. And here is someone. 
There's a cutter yeah. to tell us why it's all wonderful and everything. No, you're right. This is, a, I guess, what, what people talk about as the downside of cultural sensitivity. Yeah. When multiculturalism becomes a bad word. Exactly. It is when people say, well, no, that's that's their tradition. Yeah, that's yeah, their yeah. culture. That's perhaps a trap I fell into at the beginning of the interview. Who are we to sit in judgment? Yeah, it would yeah. be like them telling us off for Morris dancing. Oh, it, exactly. But it's so, so it's one of those things where um, I am kind of jumping. But it, it is. And that was and that's and that's what happened to me was that. I and had you, that is the most severe form. Invasive form, because I never. I never want to say. I can't um, quite. I still can't quite. I never want to say. I never want to say. Um, so like, cut is the wrong word. It's cut and stitched. But that's like that's like type three. That's I, the I most, appreciate. Yeah. That. But in terms of that's why it mutilation. Happens, yeah. It's it like so basically the cutting is the act, and I hate people that say female genital cutting because cutting is the act, mutilation is the consequences yes, that um, you are legally and like you know physically um, left with. So. That's what happened to me when I was. Um, so it's coercive seven. control of women. I mean, it, it is. This is an African slant on it. No, no. So it's a cultural slant and a global patriarchal slant on right. it. Because I, because like, as much as it's like you know, um, there's a focus on Africa. There are people within like Russia, Pakistan. Um, India and um, even in the Americas, in pl- places like really? yeah, so and not always Islamic either. No, there no, are no, plenty of Islamic, other faces. It's always, you're always like well. wherever you find. And I think what the really interesting thing is that if you find FGM as more than four, so the thing about Africa is that in places in in the, in the 28 countries where it's common in Africa, it's because what do we mean by common? It's more. Okay. It's mean more than 40 percent of the population. So in my hometown, or in 40 percent of the female population. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. It's like you know, um, but um, in my in my um, native Somaliland and Somalia, it's at ninety eight percent. So ninety eight percent of women um, under the, um, over the age of fourteen have undergone female genital mutilation. Nimco Ali there from episode fifteen of Unfiltered. Jack Monroe is a cook, a food writer, and poverty campaigner. Jack came into prominence after they published a blog titled Hunger Hurts, in which Jack detailed the devastating poverty that they and their young son were living in. Though times were desperate, Jack persevered, creating nutritious recipes that even the tightest of budgets could afford. Here's Jack from episode 19 of Unfiltered, back in February 2018. You elected to tell your story when blogging was still a relatively novel concept. Mm -hmm. And, well, you tell me. Well, I mean, I was a single mum on the dole, uh, unemployed, struggling with benefits that were being delayed and suspended and just outright withdrawn. And I'd started to take an interest in local politics because my son's children's centre was being closed down um, at a time where I was looking for employment. Which uh, obviously makes finding employment considerably harder than it yeah, would have absolutely, been. Yeah, absolutely, because, yes. uh, for, I mean, for a start, as a single parent, you're stuck in, I can find a job that starts at half past eight in the morning and finishes at 5.30 if yes. I'm willing to pay for the eight till six childcare. Everywhere then was starting to cotton on to zero-hour contracts and flexible working. You must be flexible within the, the, all seven days of the week, which is impossible when you're a single parent to commit to. And then my nearest childcare facility was shut down. So I was like, right, I'm going to start going to local council meetings and seeing who these people are that make these decisions. What, that what year was this? Where are we now? When, Ooh, 2011. Okay. 2011, 2012. Yeah. It's hard to believe I'm still going, really, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm here. Yeah. There was a um, front page of a newspaper my local newspaper, the South End Echo, and it was a local councillor who said, druggies, drunks and single mums are ruining our high street. I was outraged. Now, people are now familiar with my levels of outrage. When I get going, I get going. I wrote a letter to the South End Echo that was so long and so furious I had to print it in three parts <laughs> across three consecutive days. And um, one of my friends who works there uh, said, well, have you thought of writing a blog? A blog? A what? What's a blog? I thought it sounded like, you know, I thought it, it sounded 
uh, yeah, trivial and silly. Yes. So it's like a diary online. And I was like, as someone who kept teenage diaries, as you know, as a teenager, I was like, this is this seems therapeutic. Seems like a good way to get things out. So I started going to council meetings because I wanted to see who these people were that were shutting our libraries, shutting our children's centres, how they came to the decisions that negatively impacted mine and other people's lives. So I was doing local politics basically yes. from the public gallery. The only person there, nine times out of ten, apart from the local press journalist. Mm. And um, started writing about it. And that evolved into um, getting pieces in the paper. Sometimes they wouldn't have a political journalist to send because um, we all know local news is under an awful lot of pressure now um, financially. Um, so they would just give me a ring and say, do you mind covering it? And so then that led to I was writing recipes online at the same time. Uh, under um, the same banner? Under the same banner. It was, a, it okay, was, so it was my a, website, girlfriendjack.com, and it started off as here's the local council meeting and then here's the local council meeting and the soup I made. So it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a hybrid. I remember being quite annoyed, actually. Um, I get annoyed all the time, but it's always very minor. It's always over very quickly. Um, I can't decide if that's my Irish temperament or my Greek temperament or some <laughs> awful tornado in the middle of the two. But I'm quite annoyed because I'm sitting there writing these long pieces about yes. like local councillors and like doing real electoral analysis and spreadsheets, love a spreadsheet, and, you know, voter predictions and stuff, yes. you know, really getting into it. And then I put a recipe up for carrot soup and it got about ten times the views of uh, anything I'd ever written about South End politics. And yes. I was like, well, that's rude. Yes. And then I said, like, oh, hang on, it seems that there's a, an appetite for this, a market for this. So I started to write more about what I was cooking. And it, none of it was contrived. It was literally, this is the change I found on the back of the couch. This is what I made with it. I look back, my photos from the time were atrocious. They were taken on a like rubbish little phone camera in well, a touched. poorly lit flat. It cut uh, through, something it, happened. Yeah. When did you realise something was happening? I wrote a blog post in July 2012 called Hunger Hurts. Yes. And it was just the end of my tether. I was suicidal. I was absolutely, completely depressed. Not a word I use lightly. Um, I was trying to cobble together meals to feed a very young child that would give him just enough nutrition to get through the day without attracting the attention of social services or any other any other caregivers. Because my parents were foster carers, so I grew up with a household of a revolving door of children who had been taken away from their parents. So I always had this fear from right when I was pregnant, if I don't do right by this child, he's going to get taken away. And an irrational fear, but I grew up with nearly 100 children with various backgrounds, and some of the reasons they'd been taken into care seems to me as just a child myself at yeah. the time spurious you okay. know because we obviously weren't told too much sure so, so you, you process get, it in, in oh in, this in... this child's with you because his mum only fed him pot noodles and that okay. sticks and you're like of course well no i can't but There'll as an adult now you know there's a lot more to it than that but for so me i had a very unreasonable fear of yes. if i tell anyone how bad it is he'll get taken away okay. so my blog was pretty much anonymous. None of my friends read it. None of my family read it. My readers were scattered up and down the country. There were people who didn't know me. And then I woke up one morning and a couple of days after I'd written Hunger Hurts and it had gone absolutely viral. And I was terrified because I suddenly started getting all these questions and all this attention and all this negative attention as well as people going, oh God, what can I do to help? What do we mean by viral, Jack? I mean, how, how, how are you gauging it? I think it? two million people read it. Shut up. From 17 readers. Seriously? Yeah, so, went, so people just started boom. spreading it around and it yeah. touched so many nerves. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, it's now studied at GCSE. It's in a mock exam at GCSE. It's as, me on one what? page and Sylvia Plath on the other. Is it really? I don't know how not to write your English exam. No, it's clearly silly, but it <laughs> um, is it's think, the power um, of, of first-person narrative. Probably. I will look back now. Or despair. And... I look at it now and I think, I look at it and it's so poorly written. And I'm like, oh God, I wish they'd given me a chance to edit it before they stuck it in the AQA mock examination paper. <laughs> but that perhaps was part of the reason why, why, why yeah, it affected it was people, because there was no contrivance. Yeah, it's about storytelling and about communication and about, um, you know, about, it was about, basically about that. Jack Monroe there, from episode 19 of Unfiltered. Easily the tallest guest we've had on Unfiltered, John Amechi is a former NBA player, one of the few Brits to break into the top level of basketball, though surprisingly he was never particularly interested in the sport. John is a man of the mind, a psychologist and performance expert, and as charming as he is wise. Here he is from episode 18 of Unfiltered. On, on the question of, of, of you being gay, mm-hmm. just because there will be people watching this, particularly people of colour who still feel stigmatised. You've had people come up to you and yeah. say, I didn't know black men could be gay. So when you made the decision, first of all, how, how did you... I mean, what was your love life like from, from the age of 16, 17 <laughs> to the age of 26, 27? Non-existent. Nothing I, at I, all? I put, I put my life in a box right. and, and literally shoved it under the bed. And it was not so much uh, because, oh, this is such a dangerous, toxic thing. It was actually because I'm not good enough. Um to stay and compete at this level and and be frivolous. Ah, okay. I just, I don't, I can't I don't have the mental capacity. So even if you'd been straight, stuff. you would have parked it. Oh, think? yeah. Okay. I would have had to because I, I, I was, if you think of athletes, uh, somebody like uh, Gary Lineker, uh, is pro, you know, he's, he's up there in the in the 90s to 100 in terms of ab, his well, capability. So. I'd go for George Best. I, George Best yeah. or <laughs> Messi or any of these yes, people. Yes, I was a 76 right, you are. out of 100. Okay. And if... If I wasn't on it, then I would get my butt kicked. Yeah. So I just couldn't afford to. to so have so that it wasn't a political. F- it wasn't fear, or it was literally no, pragmatism. Yeah, yeah. And, and even later into my career, um, when I started to have a life, I met some some fun people. Not not just gay people, but some yes. fun people. I was like, ah. And so I was out uh, in my career to some of my teammates. Right. Just like most people, most gay people are out to. Not everybody. No, of course. They may wear the T-shirt during the parade, but yes. many people don't, don't do the parade. Yes. Um, and so I, I was out to family, friends, uh, okay. teammates, some of them, who I thought weren't jerks. Yeah. Um, but not everybody. And I didn't really have an intention of coming out to everybody until I got back to Manchester one summer and I saw uh, Ian McKellen, who's oh, yeah. the Grand Marshal, yeah. Leather Pants, Pink Cadillac, everything you'd expect, perhaps. And and, and I was I was stood in the, the grounds of Manchester Cathedral because it was there was no crowd there, and it's a bit raised. You can see the road, and I see there's a kid in the cathedral with me, like ducking down behind tombstones, and 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 then Ian is doing his wave in different directions, and he waves in our general direction, clearly not at us, yeah. and this kid rises up and waves and i'm like well look at that how much it means look at that and it's not i don't flatter myself i know i'm not ian mckellen stature um but i also know that there are less role models who might bust a box or two in the gay community people do tend to think that we are either alan carr or 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 somebody else who's 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 mainstream and safe and funny 
and I'm a little less so. Of course. So Because it's a, just a human condition and you're a human. You're just a slightly different human from the, yep. from the sort of predictable... So that's what made me want to come out, publicly anyway, so that maybe, maybe there'd be a kid that rises a little bit. How long before a, a professional British famous sportsman or a Premier League player comes out, do you think? There are already uh, quite a few Premier League football players who are out in the same way that is that right? most gay people are out, which is to family, friends, some of their teammates, and even some in the media. Um, but the idea that they're going to come out publicly, uh, their sport is way behind. Yes, it I is, had a conversation it? with Greg Clark that, you know, he, he told me that the last guy, the BBC, uh, the guy from the BBC who used to run football, uh, Premier League, yeah. uh, sorry, FA, uh, he got fired because he tried to change things too quickly and he's not going to get fired for that diversity stuff. No. And so there's no interest in it. They're the... They're the, they're the there's sachi. no gain. There's no gain, there's the there? sa- They're the sachi of, of, of sports right. leagues. They, yes. they make great posters. Yes. Don't be nasty to gay people. Don't be nasty to black people. Don't throw bananas. But they don't, there's no substance behind it. There's an incongruence between their rhetoric and how they actually behave. Well, it's actions versus words, so, isn't it? And would you say would the you... same of the race side of it as well? Then? Oh, yeah, yeah. I so, mean, it's, it's a lot done... better than it was. I was reading the Cyril Regis stuff after he passed away, and, and I vaguely remember that. I, I, you know, growing up in the Midlands in the 70s, yeah. Cyril Regis was, was a hero. But there's been enormous progress, but you're suggesting that, it, mm. it, that, 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 that sport in Britain has improved by accident as a result of social change rather than being an engine of change. I agree, but I would also challenge people that and progress is a tool for the status quo. Progress is how you stop real change from happening, by focusing on progress, because then it means the infinitesimal, almost imperceptible changes can be lauded as, look, look, we're on our way. Yes. No more bananas on the field. I mean, how? That, that, that's we, progress, right? Exactly? It's progress, but Managers, black managers are on a clear one-in, one-out basis mm. in that, that league. Uh, there are so many other areas where you look at them and it's very clear that for the number of, of high-quality black minds that have come through the sport, yes. whether as players or coaches, they don't penetrate anywhere into the administration. They don't seem to get into leadership. This is not an accident. You know, the, this, is, this is a systemic thing. But as long as we can t- keep talking about the fact that bananas aren't being thrown on the field like it's a... Right. Like that's a success criteria. Of course. It stops us from really focusing on what what's real change. You can stand on change. Yeah. You can build on change. Progress is is just an uphill climb that you're constantly scaling against and people rain down on you these these infinitesimal pieces of tokens. progress. Tokens, tokens yes. as a way to aren't you satisfied now? Yeah, of course. Well, there's no bananas. Now go away. Aren't you satisfied now? Because we've done this. You know? We've we've held up a, a complaint against somebody who yelled something anti-Semitic. Aren't you satisfied now? Yeah. Well, no. No, take a stand. Have a principle. John Amici, speaking on episode 18 of Unfiltered. That's all from us for now. If you enjoyed any of those clips, do go back and check out the full episodes. They're more than worth your time. James will be back with you for another interview next week. But in the meantime, you can subscribe to Unfiltered, leave a rating and a review on iTunes. And if you know someone who you think might like Unfiltered, do pass it on. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe.